Hello and welcome. My name is Sharon Carty and I'm an opera singer, a mezzo-soprano, but more on that later. And I'm an artistic partner with Irish National Opera. You're listening to part two of a two-part podcast on the different voice types you'll hear in an opera performance. In today's podcast, my guests are Brenda Hurley and Javier Sabata. Brenda is an Irish pianist and vocal coach whose career has taken her all over the world to work with incredible singers and conductors. She is currently director of the International Opera Studio at Zurich Opera House, but will soon take up her new position as head of opera at London's Royal Academy of Music. Javier is a world-famous Catalan countertenor, highly respected among colleagues and public alike for his beautiful singing, not to mention his intelligent and committed stage performances. So, if you don't know your tenors from your baritones or your sopranos from your mezzo-sopranos, you are in the right place. The next voice type I'm going to mention is an interesting one, because while a countertenor is most often cast in concert roles, also suitable for a contralto, a countertenor voice can actually be a soprano, a mezzo-soprano or a contralto. For example, countertenor Filip Jaruski is a sopranist countertenor, his colleague Max Emanuel Cencic is a mezzo-soprano countertenor, and I'm now going to chat to my colleague Xavier Sabata, an alto countertenor, to hear more about this fascinating voice type. Javier Sabata there singing Pena Tirana from Handel's Amadigi di Gaule. This track is taken from Javier's album Bad Guys, and I think you'll agree it's a beautiful sound. I asked Javier if he always wanted to become a singer, and when he decided that he would become a countertenor. Uh, yeah, uh, my, my first singing lesson was, uh, I was before to, to have my hormonal change, let's say, you know, it was a, because I've been studying music since I was nine years old. So I, I, and I was a contralto in the choir of my music school. And then when my voice changed, I tried to achieve the same musicality and the same flexibility as a, as a baritone. And I remember this Russian teacher, like really like, you know, the old school of uh, more, more and hard and uh, and I wasn't achieving anything. It was very difficult for me actually to, to really like develop, a, 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 let's say, a normal or a decent register. And, but and my voice wanted to change the whole time to the falsetto. Always wanted to go in a very kind uh, easy uh, way, go there. But what happened that time? Then I saw. Then I, I thought this is not for me. I cannot be a singer, an operatic singer. 
and I, I went to the drama school and I went to study theater and then I wanted to be an actor and I wanted to sing musicals. And something very funny happened there that uh, if I open my voice and I go to this kind of modern technique with using more the belting style, so I could achieve higher tones and I could really develop a, a normal baritone range, but never never covering my voice or really like rounding the sound was something much more close to pop. But very soon um, I discovered that that was not the style that I like and not the, the music literature that I wanted to sing. Although I love theatre, I didn't want to sing Les Miserables or, or Miss Saigon, you know. And uh, although I love that as a, as, a, as a public, but I didn't want to do that. So, and then uh, there was the boom of Andreas Scholl, I remember. And I discovered the first CDs and uh, the, I just thought, this is what I do. This is what I can do. This is a job. And then I started to fall in love with the, with the Baroque repertoire and then the rest is history. But how does a countertenor sound the way they do? As I'm sure you'll have noticed, the discrepancy between Jabi's speaking voice and his singing voice is quite significant. I asked him to explain exactly what a countertenor is, where this voice type originated, and how the countertenor voice functions to achieve its unique sound. Okay, that, but going back to what a countertenor is, is again, I'm going to say that it's a male singer who uses the highest part of his register or range with a very specific technique that we will call, um, we have been called it like for centuries already, like falsetto. Falsetto is an Italian word that means fake or something that is a little bit fake, you know, but this is just a judgment because, and this comes from the romantic time when uh, tenors started to not use this kind of a falsetto mechanism and to stretch the chest voice until the, the, the highest part of uh, what they can achieve as a singer, you know. Uh, nowadays, we don't call it falsetto anymore. We started calling it like head voice. And then nowadays we would use the word mechanism too. Uh, it's the most uh, scientific um, term for that, you know. It's not that far from what a woman does. A woman who wants to sing, let's say most of the time, like in a lyric or a, an operatic register, um, because, for example, what a woman does when wants to sing jazz or musical or pop music, uh, a woman stretches the voice, the chest register until the highest part of her uh, possibilities, you know, like uh, um, I know that maybe I'm being a little bit too technical for that, but what I'm going to say, what I want to say basically is that what a countertenor does is not as far off of what a soprano does or a mezzo-soprano does in order to go to the uh, lyric repertoire in terms of uh, the mechanism of the larynx. The, the voice type of the countertenor or the name of countertenor, we have to go to, to, the, to, the, to the medieval ages to, to, or, or the, the way we started notating music. It's like countertenor, like against the tenor. And the tenor was like, say, the, 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 the low, the, the base of the line when, when with the Gregorian um, music and chant and, and singing. So it was like, let's say, it was like the second voice that would go over this tenor, who would just tenor, tenere, comes from this word that is like holding or having the whole time. So it would go against that. So it would be like a melody who flows against this tenor. And then appeared other names like tiplus and altus and other words, but, I think that we use this term because of uh, uh, the father or the grandfather of all modern countertenors, let's say Alfred Deller in the 20s of the previous century, took this name uh, because I think that it, uh, although it's not very technically correct, 
it makes sense. In Italian, we say, si non è vero, è ben trovato. If it's not true, it's, it's, it's literally, it means if it's not true, it's well found, you know, it's like a good, a good uh, idea. Uh, so it's true, it's not really true that the countertenor goes against the tenor because it's not the lowest register, but actually it gets over the tenor and it gets close to the female voice types you know and so it it's it's a it's a really good term but i have to say that nowadays it is uh, a contentor doesn't mean just one thing we are very different because especially the last years contentors have uh, developed an extraordinary um uh, technique in order to achieve all different highs so you can get you can have like a contertenor who's actually a soprano or a contertenor who's a mezzo or a contertenor who's an alto or a contralto like me for example the contralto voice is probably the rarest voice type of all the word itself comes from contra against and alto high going back once again to polyphony initially the highest voice was called the altus or the highest coming from the same root as words such as altitude and altimeter. The contralto, or altos, function in the harmony was contra altus, beside or against the highest. Nowadays, however, contralto means the lowest female voice, with a range sometimes as low as the F below middle C, and as high as about an A above the stave. Contraltos usually have a dark but clear sound, and notable non-operatic contraltos include singers such as Dame Shirley Bassey, Doris Day and Patsy Cline, while the great British contralto Kathleen Ferrier, Italian contralto Sara Mingardo and Welsh contralto Hilary Summers are some wonderful examples of the classical contralto voice. Here's a clip of Hilary Summers singing an excerpt from Handel's Ariodante with Opera Theatre Company in 2015. the term mezzo-soprano while we were speaking about countertenors, but usually when we speak about this voice type we mean a female singer. Mezzo-soprano, interestingly, is a relatively recent term, operatically speaking. For example, Mozart didn't label any of the roles which we now take to be for mezzo-soprano today, such as Cherubino or Dorabella, as such. Instead, almost all of his roles for the female voice were written for, simply, soprano and we have to assume that the tessitura of the role would have then made clear what sort of a soprano it was for. For after all, a mezzo-soprano is just a half-soprano, isn't she? I have to recount the very funny story told to me by a colleague of how a famous Italian mezzo on holiday in a town in Italy, speaking to some locals, was asked what she did for a living. When she said, I'm an opera singer, they naturally asked, oh, are you a soprano? To which she had to reply, no, no, I'm a mezzo-soprano. Now, mezzo means half in Italian, and these locals, not being particularly expert, took her quite literally and looked at her with some pity, replying along the lines of, oh, hopefully one day you will become a, a full soprano. I think every mezzo who has been accused of being a lazy soprano will sympathise. 
Half soprano or not, we usually have a darker vocal colour or timbre and a range about a third lower than our lovely soprano colleagues. While the sopranos get a lot of the romantic female lead parts, mezzos have, historically speaking, almost always been given the so-called witches, bitches and britches roles. Witches like Verdi's Azucena or Charpentier's Medea. Some might argue that Carmen is a bit of a bitch. And we also have the britches or so-called trouser roles. Travesty roles, where a singer plays a character of the opposite sex, are common fare for the mezzo opera singer, from teenage brats like Cherubino in Le Nozze di Figaro to military generals such as Julius Caesar in Handel's Giulio Cesare. Mothers and old women are also regulars in the mezzo bag of tricks. For mezzos, there are three main fach distinctions. Lyric, dramatic and coloratura. If you haven't yet listened to part one of this podcast, have a listen back for a more detailed chat with Brenda Hurley about the Fach system. Quite a lot of mezzos will have lyrical and coloratura ability. There are exceptions, of course, but usually the weight of a dramatic mezzo voice doesn't leave much of the flexibility that one needs to sing florid passages quickly. Coloratura is the name given to these florid, melismatic and highly ornamented vocal lines and runs. This sort of singing was prevalent in the Baroque era, where the focus was on the glory of the voice and the almost superhuman athletic vocal feats that could be performed by the castrati. The castrato voice is a voice type which thankfully no longer exists. It was found that castration before puberty could preserve the pure voice of a boy treble while affording him the power and stamina of a grown man, often with increased lung capacity due to hormonal changes. Even the fact that the larynx was not allowed to drop may have bequeathed a kind of natural microphone effect, with the vocal cords much closer to the resonating space in the skull. Mezzo-sopranos and countertenors now sing the roles which are the legacy of these almost superhuman objects of fascination. Yes, I mean, there is a very big difference between a castrato and a countertenor that we don't really need to get into details. I think that this is obvious for everybody uh, who is listening or watching. Um, thank God there is this big difference. <laughs> no, first of all, uh, jokes besides, I have to say that um, they... Uh, nowadays, there is a, a misinformation that uh, that is very spread that like countertenors do what castrato used to do, and this is not actually right. Or because countertenors or falsettists or altists they existed at the same time as the as the castrato in the whole Europe, but they had very different functions. Um, so the, the golden age of castratos is the 18th century and also the 17th century, but let's say the 18th century with all, all the, 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 the big blooming of the operatic wall in London coming from Italy and also in other parts of Germany. And, um, uh, so uh these people really like castratos went on stage and became like superstars really superstars like what we would think nowadays would be beyonce and michael jackson or a movie star like really people would travel all around the world to listen to these people and countertenors would always have the place at the church and would serve um, as as religious people, but also as just uh, musicians, they would be engaged uh, in the church. Also, some castratos, many many of them, eh? but they were not looked um, with the same, let's say, um, uh, fascination. They were like ones were workers, and the others were superstars. You know, and this comes uh, all this need. Uh, this comes from the the need of the church to have like high voices, uh, and not women not being allowed to sing in church. So the castration arrived as a need of having like really high soprano voices in church after boys couldn't sing anymore as high as a soprano. And there, there is a, an extraordinary book, if somebody's interested, by this French musicologist called, called Patrick Barbier, uh, The Wall of the Castrati. 
and it's an extraordinary book and you can really have like a real picture of what would happen in Italy in those times where he says that there were more than 22 or 20,000 castrato working in Italy, just in Italy, working in churches and in institutions and, and very few of them uh, end up being superstars, you know. And in all these churches you had like artists or 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 or, or um, contertenors that time there were no nobody would call them contertenors but uh singing in church when they would change the voice but they didn't go to the traumatic experience of the castration you know um but we have to think also that a very few part of them they the the, the, the calculations are around like just to 40% of them, they were really good singers after the castration. So it was quite, quite an atrocity for the, for the poor kids. Italian singer Alessandro Moreschi was the last living castrato and a member of the choir of the Sistine Chapel, along with several other castrato singer colleagues. He died in 1922, but thankfully we still have some surviving recordings of his singing. Back to those vocal pyrotechnics I mentioned, and moving away from the castratos and countertenors, and on to the ladies. Here's Katie Bray, mezzo-soprano, singing an excerpt from Vivaldi's Griselda, O il cor già lacero. Of course, the Baroque era wasn't the only one which enjoyed exploiting the vocal pyrotechnics of singers. Rossini is well known for his playful use of coloratura in his mezzo roles, and here is Tara Erocht to wow us with Cinderella's final joyful aria. <laughs> that for the majority of female singers, the range of notes they can sing will be more or less the same. This isn't counting the low contraltos and the stratospheric high sopranos, of course, but for the most part, the notes that we have are the same. 
What differs, however, is how happy the voice is sustaining notes in a particular part of the voice. I mentioned the word tessitura a few moments ago. This comes from the Latin for texture and is the name given to the range of notes in which a roll predominantly lies, a sort of average of all the notes in the roll. And it's a really important factor, along with the size of the orchestra, in deciding what sort of voice will be most suited to sing it. A lyric mezzo-soprano and a dramatic soprano have much the same notes at their disposal, but the sound they can make and sustain in the various different parts of their voice are very different. For this reason, it's important as a young singer to make sure you're singing the correct repertoire. I asked Brenda for her thoughts on this. I think it changed. I think actually, to begin with, I think it, it kind of... The way I see it, it's, it's, like, it's like what pair of shoes fits you. Let's put it that way. So, and I think to, to start off with, it's not so difficult because if you're young, you'll probably, you'll be singing the kind of lighter stuff anyway. So if you were one of the ones with the, say, say with, well, if you're one of the ones with a lighter voice, you're kind of on a more easy path, I would say. So you sing things by Mozart in your student years and you can continue singing those roles as you continue. The, the main thing, there, there, it's really one thing actually, it's vocal health. So if you're singing, mainly the main thing mistake people make is to sing stuff that's too heavy for them. We say too big. The shoes are too big. The, the role is too heavy. What does that mean? It's quite important to know the difference between that actually and, and, and other. What does it mean? I mean, it's all just music. But for example, late romantic repertoire, for example, Puccini roles or Verdi roles, middle, middle romantic repertoire. They can have very, very long lines, big orchestras, Wagner, big orchestras, and they need powerful voices to get through the orchestra. And if a younger singer or a singer with the voice that's too light tries to sing that stuff, they can damage their uh, vocal cords. I have witnessed in my own time, and I won't say the names, two very famous uh, young singers who came into the profession and sang they were discovered, you know, mega. One of them went to Covent Garden and then they met, you know, almost straight away. And five years later, the career was over because they had sung nothing but major roles that were too big for them. The voice could do it, but the, it, it became damaged because it's like a sports person who overdoes it. And then once the damage is done, it's very hard to go back. There are two kind of strands there, even three. The first one is like, if you go to a smaller German house, as a young singer, that might be, that's where it's tricky because you, you're on a salary. And I've had this with young singers. They said, I got this and this, and, that's, and I'd say that's perfect. But they also want me to sing, you know, the role that's too big for me because they need someone to sing it and they haven't got enough money maybe to, 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 to hire another bass. I was thinking of a bass who, who came and he wanted, they gave him Sarastro and they gave him like a small role like Mazzetto. But then they were giving him like um, Fiesco. Now, if anybody knows Simo Bocanegra, Fiesco is just huge. Or, or Philip in Don Carlo. Like, and I said, no, no, no. I said, you must say no, you must say no. Now, and that's where the, I think particularly the young singer, but I mean, indeed any singer needs to be careful that the package that you get, that it all fits your voice. And I mean, they're not all going to be main roles. A lot of them will be kind of minor roles, subsidiary roles. You'll get like one or two main roles and maybe a lot of subsidiary roles because you're in a, in, you're a civil servant. You're in a job with other people, you know. There might be 10, 15, 20 ensemble singers in that opera house. And they don't want to employ guests because that'll cost them money. So they try and get all of you maybe at some stage to do something that's really outside your comfort zone. And that's where you need to be very, very careful. Now, if it's in somewhere like Zurich Opera House or Munich Opera House, or, um, well, those two in particular in the German system, if you went into the ensemble in our places, it's the other way around. You would only get tiny roles, really, unless you're amazingly good. And then you might get a middle-sized role. So you're not going to do any damage to your voice, but you might get very bored and you mightn't develop your voice enough. You mightn't get to practice doing long things. So that's a kind of interesting thing. The word soprano comes from the Latin sopra, meaning above. So as you can imagine, the soprano voice is the highest voice type and they usually get the romantic female lead parts. You might have heard the expression, the money notes. Sopranos have those in bucket loads. They usually have a range from middle C to C two octaves above, with many sopranos having even higher notes. 
for example the queen of the night goes to an f above that there's a mozart concert aria with the g flat and more recently the exterminating angel an opera by thomas adis based on a spanish surrealist film where the guests at a dinner party find themselves inexplicably unable to leave this opera has an A above that, and it's been noted that this is the highest note ever to have been sung on the stage at the Metropolitan Opera, by soprano Audrey Luna, who Irish audiences might remember as the Queen of the Night in Irish National Opera's production of The Magic Flute. For a long time, Mariah Carey was credited with having sung the highest note, a G7, during a 2003 rendition of The Star-Spangled Banner. However, in 2008, a guy named Adam Lopez took the record by hitting a C-sharp 8, a note so high it's off the keyboard, in front of a live audience. Have a listen. The way this will be working is Michael on piano will be playing the first note, which is A below D for all the musicians out there. That is four notes below Adam's current record, so once he gets four notes above the starting note, he will have hit his current Guinness World Record. Okay, so his fourth note, he'll equal the record. He will. His fifth note, he will go beyond that. Are you OK? Are you ready to start? I think I'm ready. We'll let you collect Let's your do thoughts. It. We'll stand back out of your way. <coughs> In your own time, Adam. All right. <coughs> that is remarkable. <coughs> Not sure what that note was yet. What was it? F sharp. <coughs> <coughs> That's C sharp and it's off the piano. Yes! Oh, he's there. Oh, I'll take it, he's done it. Oh, all right. I must say, that's out of my range, so it's hard for me to tell at what particular stage you actually got there. So, how far over the record did you go? Oh, almost a full octave. 11 semitones higher than the record breaking note. So, so you blew it out of the water. I kicked butt. Chris, are you happy with that? I am very happy with it. It's a new Guinness World Record. Wow. Congratulations. Coming back to Fach once again, the soprano voice type is probably the one which has the most variety in terms of classification within the voice type itself. Differences in colour, weight, range, stamina and flexibility allow for a huge palette of vocal Fachs for which composers wrote and continue to write. Brenda took me through the more common subdivisions of the soprano voice. You could be in one of more or less six categories. So the, the, the first category would be the highest category. That's a, a coloratura soprano is called. Coloratura meaning being able to do lots of quick runs. And you would probably have a very high voice. And the higher you can do, the better, the better you will be. The, the more work you can do, you can, you can put it that way. So the ideal uh, would be to be able to go up to a top F, which is two, a two octaves and a fourth above middle C. Um, there aren't that many rows that go up to a, a, a top F. You have, if you were a heavier lyric coloratura, like what's called dramatic lyric coloratura, you, you, you could sing Queen of the Night from Magic Flute, very famous. Or Zerbinetta, I think she goes up to top F in Ariadne Afnaxos. Um, if you were lighter, you could sing Blonde in uh, the Enfuring of, of Simsarai, which has a top E, a kind of famous top E in one of the arias. Um, Gilda in Rigoletto is in that category. I think she, she has a D. Uh, it's not that high, but th that's the kind of area wh where you would be. Lulu by Berg is a great role, and it's also in that high category. Then you would come to what's called a soubrette soprano. And a soubrette soprano would be normally then the younger starting off sopranos, um, who would sing maybe Susanna or Barbarina in The Marriage of Figaro, uh, Pamina, Cleopatra in Julius Caesar, maybe Despina, a lot of Mozart and Handel roles, that kind of thing. Um, and then her voice might develop into what we call a lyric soprano, which is really your mainstay soprano type. And a lyric soprano has a bit more weight in the voice. It's probably to do with the, the body growing, the, the musculature of, your, of the singer also developing through the years, years and years of practice, the things change. 
you know, it becomes more mature, you might say, like, like a good wine, let's put it that way. So the, the lyric soprano then would sing roles like more, more heavier Mozart roles like Fior de Ligi or, or um, the Countess in The Marriage of Figaro. Uh, she might sing uh, Mimi in La Boheme, that's a little bit heavier. Uh, she might sing uh, Adina in uh, Elisir d'Amore or something like Michaela in Carmen, but that's even getting into the, the next category. This, they kind of inter interweave sometimes. So the next category would be spinto, lyric spinto soprano. And there you're talking heavier again. You're talking Mich Michaela, I would almost put in that category. Um, Elisabetta in Don Carlo, a lot of Verdi roles, you know? Um, Desdemona, these kind of roles, Butterfly, Puccini, P Butterfly, Madame Butterfly. These are big roles and the orchestras are bigger. The instruments are louder. You have more brass instruments, you know, sort of going through the years. And then the, the final uh, kind of subdivision is what I find a very interesting one. It's the dramatic soprano. And there aren't, there aren't that many of them around. Um, Let's, let's say a lot of Wagner would come into this category, that the biggest, bigger Wagner roles, like Brunhilde, is a very, very long role as well. And a very famous one is Turandot, incredibly, incredibly difficult role. Uh, she has this aria called In Questa Regia, where she has a very big top C, and it's expected to kind of blast out. And Electra from uh, Richard Strauss is another famous dramatic soprano role. And in that voice category, it's kind of interesting. The voice would have what I call a lot of metal, a lot of steel in it. And it will project for miles. You know, it, it would be a voice for the big theatres like the, the Metropolitan Opera, where you have 4,000, you know, that kind of thing. Maybe Borgash in Ireland. You know, yeah. Isolde from Tristan and Isolde is another one of those roles. And they're long roles, they're, they're, they're not short. Even if it's Electra, which is kind of one act, you're singing the whole way through the opera. So you need a lot of stamina. And it's interesting, sometimes if you hear a voice like that in a small room, you know, which a lot of us work in small rooms a lot of the time, um, it'll sound maybe ugly, it'll sound kind of strange. But when, when you hear it in the theater with a huge orchestra, it's, it's just amazing. It can be, it can be really, kind of overwhelmingly good and, and Aida and Tosca they're also like they, they, but there are very few people who can sing these roles very well but enough talking about these voice types what do they sound like Brenda mentioned the dramatic soprano Wagner's Tristan and Isolde requires a dramatic soprano for the role of Isolde and here's a piece of trivia for your next table quiz Isolde was the daughter of the 6th century Irish King Angus and she had a legendary love affair with the Cornish knight Tristan, which is the subject of Wagner's opera. And Chapel Izzard in Dublin gets its name from Chapel Isoge in Irish, or the Chapel of Isolde. Here we'll listen to Miriam Murphy singing the famous Isolde's Liebestod from Tristan and Isolde. What about the dramatic coloratura, the Queen of the Night? Have a listen to Kim Sheehan singing this bravura role from Mozart's The Magic Flute and make sure to listen out for the famous top F. Stich, 
another famous role Brenda mentioned. Here's Celine Byrne singing Un bel di vedremo, or One Fine Day, from Puccini's Madama Butterfly. Coming now towards the lighter side of things, here's Moira Flavin singing Mozart's Countess from The Marriage of Figaro. It's a lyric role, but one which still requires a certain weight to the voice. And finally, here's Sarah Power singing in Gluck's Orfeo and Eurydice. Notice that there are fewer instruments in the orchestra and that these don't overpower the lighter voice.
looks beautiful aria for Eurydice there. The story of Orfeo and Eurydice is one which has stood the test of time, and its numerous settings by various composers of opera attests to this. But what relevance can a Greek hero descending into the underworld to rescue his beloved wife have for us? I asked Javier what was so special about opera that still makes it relevant today. I leave you with his thoughts. I think because of the the therapeutic effect of art, you know, I still think that uh, it's we it we it goes back to the basics. It goes back to the origin of it, you know, uh, why we still are we still are like the public of the Greek tragedies that needs to to go through a, a, a cathartic process in order to heal the soul, you know. Uh, and this is what drama and empathy is about, you know. And uh, this is a power that we cannot deny. It's true that some people doesn't connect, don't connect, but not because of the art itself. It's because maybe sometimes it's the liturgy that it's around. People judge uh, how, how opera maybe uh, created social uh, classes and it can be quite classist and quite uh, snob and everything but thank god this is in many 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 parts of the world not like that and we still as human being to face uh, two things either to empathize with somebody and going through somebody's emotion in order to heal ourselves like a catharsis or to relieve fear the the something that is unachievable the fear and the and the and the uh, uh, hypnotic and exotic effect of hearing a singer achieving something that you think you cannot do, and opera provides that visually, and musically, and uh, theater also. I mean, and when I say, I had a kind of a revelation like two three years ago in Salzburg when I was happy to see these uh, the Persians, this the, the the ancient tragedy, and they recreated in a modern way what what let's say the um, that the trans effect of the words and the rhythm of a Greek tragedy could be everything was very artificial constructed, but it was full of like ups and down, and it lasts like almost six hours, five hours, something like that, the show. But you would go through all these kind of uh, uh, cathartic moments and then relief, release of energy and, and then again building all this tension. And it was extraordinary. And you would feel the public like sitting and moving together and kind of a very, very basic and... and, and uh, and opera creates the same when you see a Lucia and you see the, the crazy aria and... You, if it's well done, there is nothing else that you are transported to another world. We people said, "Oh, I was transported, transport, transported," but it is actually, it's actually like that. We give ourselves is a kind of a, uh, uh, we we let ourselves go to 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 another place, and we give the power to these artists and to this music, and they deliver us all this kind of a purification that some people like young people go to raves and takes things and it's it's all this kind of a art provides us we can get out of ourselves and clean ourselves for certain things and and opera does this so i think that we we still need it
You've been listening to an Irish National Opera podcast produced in partnership with DLR Libraries, researched and presented by me, Sharon Carty, with editing and mixing by Leisha O'Brien. If you're interested in the music you heard in this episode, you can find a full list of all the performances and recordings featured on irishnationalopera.ie. Special thanks to the artists and arts organisations featured for giving us permission to use their audio recordings in this episode.